We want our kids to have good learning experiences. We want our kids to love coming to class, even on days when they're tired, even on days when they're stressed. We want the learning environment to be a safe place, and we want it to be a place where they can be curious, they can ask questions, and they can learn how to make sense of the world around them. Education Uncharted is a show from Propello, a K-12 teaching and learning platform that helps districts and teachers give every student a first-class learning experience. I'm your host, Amanda Bratton, exploring the stories of courageous educators that have broken out of the status quo to chart new paths and boldly innovate in the ever-changing landscape of education. In today's show, we'll get to know our favorite chemistry teacher. Today's guest is Phil Cook. TikTok's favorite chemistry teacher, who has been teaching for over two decades. Through memorable experiments on social media, he engages with learners from all over the world, instilling a love of science and building curiosity in unexpected ways. So, Phil, it's really good to meet you. Can you tell us a little bit about your school and the students that you're teaching and the situation that you're finding yourself teaching chemistry in these days? So where I teach right now is very different than where I started off teaching, but the school where I teach right now is a co-ed boarding school. So we have about 860 kids, male and female from all over the world. A lot of them come from the Midwest, but a lot of them come from all over the United States and from Korea, from China. We have a lot of countries represented in the student population at our school, which I think is a really nice benefit to making a diverse of a classroom as you could possibly imagine. But they're boarding kids. They live on campus and we spend a lot of time together. It's a lot more like a family educational environment than it is like a traditional day school kind of situation. And if you look at kind of the demographics of the kids that are in that classroom, they strike me a lot like the same kids that I taught when I was teaching in Oak Park, which is a suburb of Chicago. It's not a school where everybody is there purely for a, a hardcore academic focus. We've got a lot of kids that are there for the leadership qualities at the school. We've got kids that are academically focused. We've got kids that are athletically focused. It's a big kind of mix, a heterogeneous mix of kids, all with their own kind of ambitions and goals for their education. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? How did you even decide to move into a career as a chemistry teacher? Where did that come from? I didn't really start out thinking about becoming a teacher at all. My mom is a middle school and elementary art teacher, and she was a teacher for 40 years before she retired. And my dad was a firefighter. So that was the blue collar background that I came from. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I was interested in chemistry because I had a phenomenal chemistry teacher in high school. Not only did she get me to love the science, but she also encouraged me to do experimentation on my own and gave me the freedom to do that. So I knew I, I wanted to pursue some sort of chemistry. So I started out going into chemical engineering at Purdue and I pursued that for about a semester. And I started to think to myself, what do I want to do with this? And most of the jobs at the time would have been going into the petrochemical industry or the pharmaceutical industry, working on pathways to develop new chemicals, like new pharmaceuticals or pathways for processing petroleum into gasoline, diesel fuel, byproducts of petroleum distillation, and that sort of thing. And I asked myself, do I want to do that? And the answer was no. <laughs> so I changed my degree to food science because I thought, oh, let's, look, let's get into chemistry of food because I thought that was interesting. And I tried that for a while, but I had an experience 
over spring break where I did some Habitat for Humanity style work. I got to work in a classroom of first grade kids. I just remember the kids after we were talking about science, about things dissolving and not dissolving. And they just come up afterwards and they just hugged onto me. And I'm like, this feels like something that I could get into. And so I changed my major to chemistry education and never looked back. Amazing. Yeah. There's a chemistry, an emotional <laughs> chemistry. And I think that's really interesting. We have a teacher shortage right now, especially in the STEM fields. So I wonder, just talking about that experience that you had where you realize, oh, maybe this is the space for me. How can we get more young scientists and engineers and mathematicians to consider teaching as a career? Give them the opportunity to have that interaction where they share their experience and they get to see someone respond to it in real time. I think it's very different than in a traditional job trajectory where you might be looking at, well, what's the next stage? When do I get my next promotion? That sort of thing. With education, it's a lot more like I'm sharing a love for something that I value tremendously. I value science. I value experiences that help you to better understand the world around you. So if you give people that opportunity to get into a classroom or even just those kind of cross-pollinating events where sometimes you bring people in and, and they end up talking to kids and then those people are like, I never knew I could have a, a response from little kids or high school kids or whatever their age might be, where they really resonated with what I do on a day-to-day -day basis and to me might be very mundane, but to them, it was exciting and they had all these questions. And that got me really interested in thinking about how I could better educate those people around me. It makes a ton of sense. And I wonder if your current work, the work that you're doing now, not only in the classroom, but your current work as chem teacher Phil, do you think that is, even though it's not a face-to-face -face interaction, you're definitely grabbing onto an emotional aspect of science and getting people involved and interested. What do you think about that? So when you create content, you're putting something out there and then seeing how people respond to it. So from the viewer's perspective, they might see something they've never seen before, or they might see something that kind of brings back a thought of, oh, chemistry, I hated that class. Like they, they have these very negative connotations that go along with that particular subject. So through the videos that are out there and that I can create, you bring this curiosity where you show them something that might be surprising to them. And then they start to ask questions through comments or through sending you messaging. And then they start to say, oh, I had the worst chemistry experience, but you got me thinking about this a little bit differently now. And so I think social media is a great way to kickstart those kind of creative juices of maybe I hated chemistry then, but now I think it's actually really interesting. And there's no penalty for being curious, right? There's no penalty for asking questions at this point that is very different than what the experience may have been like when you were learning science in a traditional classroom. As educators, how can they employ some of those tactics in their own classroom? Is there a way that I can break down some of those barriers without having to create my own TikTok account? Yeah, I don't think you have to have any presence on social media, honestly, to be able to be effective in the classroom. From my own experience, what I think has always worked well is you show things that are interesting visually to kids, you let them ask questions, and then you ask them to apply. So you, you explain to them what's going on, and then you give them, based on that discrepant event or that phenomena that you may have shown them before, you say, okay, if now you know how it works, show me that you can actually do it on your own. So giving them some ownership on the learning that they do. A lot of that can be through project-based activities that you do with them. 
or even experiments where they design their own experiment based upon some information that you've communicated to them. Anytime you give a little bit of freedom and autonomy to kids to take ownership on the learning that they engage in, I think you're going to have a better result. So in chemistry, we tend to look at the chemical reactions through three lenses. We look at what do we see with our eyes? What do we smell? What do we observe? That kind of thing. What do we feel if we can touch the container, if it's hot or cold, that sort of thing. So taking that an approach where you're looking at it from multiple angles, I think is really important in education. But outside of all of that, if you're not getting kids to actually get their hands into science and do some science, I think you're doing yourself and your students a disservice. So I'm hearing that inquiry piece, right? That really getting yourself into asking the questions, allowing students to play with bringing in their prior knowledge. It really is starting with that. Let's engage you right away. Let's give you Mm -hmm. something to think about. Let's give you something to ask questions about so that you can start digging in and do science or do whatever it is that's happening in your class that you're going in and you're doing that and not just intaking, right? I can give you a very specific example that I think has a lot of applications in a lot of different avenues in science that is accessible to a wide range of kind of learners. So if you go to a dollar store, they sell these little packages. They're called Whack-A-Packs. And it's like a little square of plastic that says, smack it, and then a balloon pops out. And that's literally what happens. So you smack it. Of course, kids love doing that. Because if they're frustrated or whatever, I'm like, just imagine something that's frustrating. You get your frustrations out by smacking that pack with your fist. And then they watch as it blows up. And then a balloon just explodes out. I'm like, quick, grab the balloon, feel it. And when you feel it, you'll notice it's actually cold, which is surprising to most kids. So they see that event. And what's really happening, there's actually, it's a very simple reaction. It's a double replacement reaction. There's an acid, and then there is a base, which is baking soda in there. And there's a little packet of water that has some citric acid dissolved in it. But they don't know that. So what you can have them do, based on that observation, right, what do they know at that point? They smack the package, a balloon pops out, it felt cold. That was their observations that kick off their exploration and say, okay, how could we learn more about what's going on in there? Then you can have them do a dissection, give them another one and say, okay, this time don't smack it. Cut it open carefully, get your safety glasses on, that kind of thing. Take it back in the lab. And what kind of tests could we do? Right now, depending on the course that you teach, there might be different avenues to explore with what you find inside. You'll see a liquid, you'll see a white powder. Depending on whether it's a high school level or like a middle school level event, you can tailor that to your needs. But regardless, you've got this discrepant event that you start with that allows for lots of avenues of exploring and explaining what they observed later on. And it's safe, right? But there's lots of experiments you can do like that, that are just using everyday off the shelf kind of materials. And the chemistry can be actually quite complicated. So you can teach some pretty advanced topics. And you can also just teach kids to be curious and to find ways that are appropriate for science to explore what they're curious about. So I'm hearing you talk about this and I'm thinking about the methods that you take to plan the way that you're going to teach this lesson and you're going to allow students to guide themselves and maybe the class as a whole through these questions and the types of things that you're going to explore. Have you always taught that way or was this a method worked into over time? No, it's not at all the way that I've always taught. In fact, in thinking about coming on onto the podcast today, 
I spent some time reflecting back upon what it felt like to be like a new teacher. Cause I've got 23 years under my belt at this point. It feels comfortable for me. I know about what kids are going to do on a given activity. I know what kind of mistakes they're likely to make. I knew none of that going into teaching. And when I first started out, I was teaching in Chicago. I had about 35 kids in a classroom. That limited kind of some of my options right there because it wasn't safe for me to do certain things with them. But nevertheless, I always wanted them to have an experience. So if there's anything that's been a common thread throughout my educational experience, it's been doing what I can to give them a lab experience and allow them some avenue to engage with their hands in the learning of science. Now, the way that has changed over the years has progressed more towards getting them to learn some ideas and then apply those ideas where I couldn't always do that. But yeah, I think one thing that stands out to me in my memory is just how panicked I constantly felt as a chemistry teacher. I started my very first year teaching. I was teaching honors chemistry. I was teaching a regular chemistry class. And I had to teach a reading skills class, which I didn't know I was going to have to be teaching until three days before the school year started. So that one in and of itself was the most panic-inducing. But I remember every night just working really hard on lessons, thinking about what was reasonable to get done in 42 minutes. And then just seeing if it worked. And then over time, you learn, oh, tweak it here, cut the time down here, make sure you give them three questions, not five, to think about so that they actually have time to do them. Build in time for questions, build in time for cleanup. And so sometimes you can be that subject matter expert, but you then have to be the classroom expert in order to really feel like you can start getting into that comfort zone, right? What do you do in your classroom to try to do some of that cross-curricular work? Currently, what I do is I just take advantage of the fact that I know that kids are not, in general, very good at reading and digesting text. They tend to listen to things a lot more now. They tend to skim, and they don't skim very well. So when you recognize that's the general kind of characteristic of the kids that you might be teaching, then you start to say, you build them a reading guide. Right? You build them a reading guide where they're looking for specific things. You give them focus questions mm. or you say, you know, I want you to pull out bold terms and you pay attention to those bold terms. Or we're going to talk about terms that even though you wrote down the definition, you still don't know what it means at the beginning of class. It's a cop out to say, read and take notes over this because you don't know if kids are actually good at taking notes or not. So what you can do as a teacher, at least for what I do to get to know my kids a little bit better, I collect their notes. And I read, they all read the same stuff. What are they taking away from it? Because that helps me to better understand where their strengths are in reading texts. And it allows me to have a conversation with them where I say, okay, you guys, you did a good job of looking at the bold terms, but that was because it was simple. You go through, you look for the bold terms, you look them up. But what are the bigger ideas there? The common thread that I get from kids to this day is that they'll say, Mr. Cook, I read it, but I didn't read it. I read it, but it's like I didn't read it at all. I was just looking at the words, and the words had no meaning to me. And I understand that from when I was in high school. That's how reading was for me. It was difficult. And I don't know what the explanation was, but I do know that now I've got better ways of addressing it so that we can say, okay, if that's the way that you read, fine. Take my advice, do these strategies as you read, and that should hopefully improve some things. I think that some of the strategies that you're talking about make a ton of sense. And I wonder if you find that if a student is completing the reading and they're feeling a little bit of disconnect between the words that they're seeing on the page and their actual understanding of the concept, 
I have to imagine that after doing some of the explorations and the experiments within class, they might make some new connections there. So after you've done a little bit of hands-on figuring out, does that text then become a little bit easier for them? Yeah, I agree with that. And from my experience, if I typically take the structure of, I have them read a little bit of pre-information about an experience that they're going to be doing in the lab. I always open up for questions. I'm like, okay, if you're reading this and you don't understand something, write a question. We'll take that first. Then they go do the experience. We typically will do a little bit of note-taking to break down the connection between what they did in the lab and what they'd read about previously. And then I might have them read something a little bit more advanced because now I've warmed them up with some background knowledge in their brain. They've not only read a lower level kind of description of the science, they've experienced the science. And now I'm asking them to look at it through a little bit more advanced lens and build and see what they can take away from that. And oftentimes that's been a successful way of teaching them new concepts in the classes that I teach. Thanks for that. It's so valuable as educators to learn from each other and find out what's working in your classroom, what's working for your students, what's working for you as you work through your day so that we're all having improved outcomes. I'm making sure that my students are hitting the mark in what it is that they need to understand by the end of this class period or the end of this marking period. And I'm hitting my mark because I feel successful. I'm able to move through my day in a way that I don't feel burdened, right? And so it's always great to hear from other teachers things that are working for them and then to think about how I can apply that in my classroom. And I'm wondering if you can just tell me insights that you've gained as you have grown your following as a TikToker and what it is that you have found or maybe learned through the experience that you've been able to bring into the classroom or to share with others? For me, I think the biggest takeaways I've learned is it's always important to connect what you're showing to something that is accessible to the person that's watching it. So you can talk about something that is maybe a high-level chemistry concept, but it's not going to resonate at least nearly as strongly as it could unless you tangibly connect it to something that person is familiar with. Now, of course, making viral content tends to be showing something that's very strange or most people don't have access to seeing easily because that's what makes us watch. A good example of this is I did a video a year or so ago about... It was about firefighting. The subtext was firefighting. But the video started off with a shot of a helicopter that was dropping ping pong balls out of this little chute into the forest floor. And I think my opening line on the voiceover was something like, why are they dropping ping pong balls out of this helicopter into the forest? And it turns out that they're doing that from a forestry management perspective to light fires. So the ping pong balls were incendiary. So they would burst into flame when they hit the ground. And the reason why they were using a helicopter to do it is because it was a very mountainous region where firefighters could not easily access to do backburning. Typically with backburning, they would use what's called a drip torch. It's like a torch that drips flaming fuel. And they would use it to create a burn zone so that an advancing forest fire stops in its tracks because all the fuel has been burnt out ahead of it. But sometimes you can't easily do that backburning in person. So they have this contraption that takes ping pong balls, injects them with two chemicals that as soon as they mix, they ignite about 20 seconds later, 
And so the video was me basically recreating that in the lab, explaining the chemicals that were involved and the oxidation and reduction process that caused the reaction. And then they saw me in my backyard. I made it so that it looked like the helicopter dropped one of the ping pong balls into my barbecue and then it ignited my barbecue when it burst into flame. All of that theatrics was just to basically, number one, they're curious from the start because why are you dropping ping pong balls out? But then in the end, they realize it's something that's more of a conservation use of chemistry. We're using chemistry in this case to prevent forest fires from doing more damage than they might possibly. And I think with social media, when you have that mix of things, that curiosity, the little small lesson, the takeaway, and then the application, that's what makes social media effective and gets people to be interested in the work that you do. Yeah. And it's interesting. So you're a high school teacher and these are kids who want to hear stories, right? I am sure that of all of your followers, it's not just high school kids wanting to know more about chemistry. We all want to hear stories. And to be able to learn a little bit about science encapsulated in a story, that's the way that we live our lives is we live through story. Absolutely. The story actually helps people remember things much more effectively than just telling them a fact. If you give it context and value through the story that it's connected with, you make a stickier piece of information. You can grab onto that, right? You can relate it to your own life. You can relate it to what you already know. You can take some of these complex scientific concepts and embed them in that schema of what the world is because I find connection. Fantastic. I wonder how your students have responded to your presence online. Have you noticed a change in the way that your students respond to you or the way that they approach science in your classroom now that you are a star? (laughs) I think initially when kids are new to my class, they probably come in with their own notion of, oh, I've only seen him on social media. I think he is like this. And then they realize, I'm not really like that. That's just social media. You're seeing the stuff that's been highly edited and scripted and is 30 to 35 seconds long. Life is a lot more than just that little snippet of space and time. But I think that they see some similarities in terms of how I approach a love of learning or being curious about the world around them and wanting to know a connection between what you're being asked to learn and why it might be of value to you within the real world. That I think carries through. Some kids can be a little apprehensive at first. I don't know why that is, but for some reason, if you're on TikTok and you have a following, there's a lot of value in at least the high school age kids that I teach. There's a lot of value with that. Earned or unearned, it doesn't really matter. They have this perspective that if you're like a social media influencer, that you have to be something like, not like a normal person almost. And they come in and they might be a little bit apprehensive to ask questions or to talk. And you just got to break down those walls and just be like, listen, I'm your teacher. I'm here for you. I'm here to help you learn. Ask me questions. No, I'm not going to comment on your TikTok. I do get a lot of things like that. Okay, will you like the TikTok? Will you like this? But I'm like, no, that's not why we're here. And I'm also not going to ask you to make TikToks for me in the class because the whole point behind that is to teach a lesson to people who don't have the opportunity to be here in class and learn. You have that opportunity to be here and engage directly. So let's do that. Let's do the best job we can with that. Yep, absolutely. So I'm wondering how you see these emerging technologies, right? Social media wasn't around when we were in school. 
<laughs> and now we're seeing the event of AI coming into the classroom, coming into just our daily lives. And I'm wondering if you've thought about how these technologies are changing the way that we live our lives and maybe how we approach learning in the classroom or science education. I think there's definitely ways where just thinking of video in general, the video has enhanced the learning experience because you can provide access to things that you might never have given students access to in the past. Like I can show them whatever I'd like to show and not have to worry about safety or cleanup or prep. And that adds value because you can show them things that really bolster what they might be reading about and gives them that context that they wouldn't have had the opportunity to observe otherwise. And there's also a lot of really good platforms where you can design engagement, kind of little checkpoints within the content that you're developing and have kids respond in the moment so you know that you're holding their attention. So from my perspective, at least, outside the class, work has become a lot less reading and a lot more multimedia. So maybe there's a little bit of reading, but there's also a little bit of video and a little bit of critique of the video or responding to questions related to a particular video component. The thing that I think might be on the negative side of things is there's so much saturation of video. There's so much content that's out there with all kinds of mistakes and fallacies and errors and presentations that are misleading that unless students are critically thinking about what the video is showing them and the facts that are behind what's being shown to them, that they can very easily form misconceptions. So as a teacher, I take it upon myself to curate very carefully what my kids in my classes engage with in terms of video content. But I know that outside of my classroom, they're doing whatever they'd like to do on their phones or watching the kind of media that they'd like to watch. And that no doubt has an effect upon them. And I think you're right, that critical thinking piece, evaluating, is this a reliable source for my understanding of this concept? Or is what I'm seeing in this video real? Does it connect with what I know about the rest of the real world? Is mm -hmm. absolutely a piece that we as educators need to help support students in understanding and trying to develop the ability to use that critical thinking brain as we work through and move through our days. How are you allowing students to take what they've learned in your class and evaluate what they're seeing in their lives and then critically diving into what is real and what might not be real? I think really for me, that's a two-part consideration because on one hand, I'm very deliberate in the work that I have students do from a critical thinking perspective. And every kind of at least the core structure of the chemistry class that I currently teach, we have what's called a challenge. After every unit of study, there's a challenge, and the challenge is always based on the real world. So a couple of examples, we have them compare different fuels from a carbon dioxide emission standpoint and an energy comparison. And then they use that to say, why would it be a good idea from a climate perspective to choose fuel X compared to fuel Y? From an energy perspective, how would that argument change? That's one lens that we can take, and that's something for me as a chemistry teacher that I apply to every single unit that I teach students in. But I think more broadly, the whole consideration of how you evaluate the validity of what you read on the internet or what you see on the internet, that is very troublesome to me because there's so much massaging of data, massaging of video, 
of voices. AI and ChatGPT have broken down barriers and made it very easy to ask a question and get a detailed answer from a computer that has read the internet and can distill it down into an answer. But if you take that as truth, that's the problem. If you're a kid and you're trying to do homework, for example, and a teacher asks you a prompt, if you're like, hey, I can save some time, I'm just gonna put it in ChatGPT. They paste that question in and it may give them a decent explanation. And if the kid doesn't read it and they just copy and paste, it does them no value. They've learned nothing other than how to use a functionalized, computer-powered AI search engine. I think, how do we teach to that? How do we teach them to be critical thinkers? That is the challenge of education now. It's such a new conundrum in the classroom and in reality, right, that we're all trying to figure out exactly what that looks like. Understanding that this tool is not going away. It's here, and we need to figure out how we can coach students to make the right decisions to use whatever tools they have appropriately. I think we're all going to be learning from each other and finding what works well and what doesn't over the next several years. And that's not a bad thing. It's not something that they should be scared about, but it is something that they should understand that everything has faults. Everything has limitations. And you have to be able to diagnose what those limitations are and recognize that you can't trust everything. The student has to be like, okay, I value this. I want to understand that. I want to see if I agree. Do I agree with what this artificial intelligence is telling me? It seems to me that as educators, our job is to also ensure that these kids are finding value in what we're talking about and what we're doing and what we're figuring out in a classroom. Um, And it's, like I said, it's always a plus to be able to share these ideas with each other and say, this is what's working for me. Maybe it's going to work for other people too. So that kids can see the value in wanting to know more and wanting to evaluate and not just settle for this will be good enough. Yeah. I think if anything that you can do as a teacher to have something be intrinsically rewarding, where it's just, it feels good. It's, oh, I was successful in doing this particular challenge. That feels great. And what did I have to do to be successful? I had to do X, Y, and Z, and I had to really push myself. But it feels so good to know that I did it myself. Those kind of situations that we as teachers can design experiences for, absolutely. We want our kids to have good learning experiences. We want our kids to love coming to class, even on days when they're tired, even on days when they're stressed. We want the learning environment to be a safe place, and we want it to be a place where they can be curious They can ask questions and they can learn how to make sense of the world around them. It's definitely a mix of both kind of a cooperation between the teacher and the student. Absolutely. Mr. Cook, this has been a fantastic chat. I am so grateful to have you here today chatting with us. We're really looking forward to sharing your knowledge with the rest of the listeners here on our podcast and I hope that we can touch base with you again sometime soon and have another chat sometime soon. Sounds good. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, Amanda. Wow. I learned so much from Phil today. Here are a few takeaways from our conversation. First of all, Phil's social media presence has allowed him to give learners a safe place to explore science and build curiosity. 
We need to bring that same safety and inquiry-driven approach to our classrooms. Giving context to our content, whether it's science or another subject area, seeing it in action and exploring it in hands-on ways, giving concepts a story. This is what helps our content resonate in ways that last long after class ends. Next, Phil's practice, it's changed over the years. He's learned from experience what works and what doesn't. While it may seem easy for him today, his early years of teaching were stressful, filled with long days and lots of trial and error. The best educators are always seeking ways to improve their practice, knowing that not everything will be a hit. The try, fail, learn, repeat mentality and leaning into that discomfort of the new or unknown, that's an opportunity for growth. If you're interested in learning more from Phil and checking out some of his experiments, you can find him on a social media platform near you at the handle ChemTeacherPhil. I'm Amanda Bratton. For more conversations with bold educators exploring uncharted territory, click the link in the show notes or visit propello.com backslash learn to learn more.